I'm going to attempt tonight without the marker board. We might need to bring it over, we'll see. Um, so we can go through the elements I have here. So we're going to move forward from having hopefully given you a lot of biblical basis for confronting people with their sin. Confronting people with that principle in a morally relativistic world. Confronting sin. So we set, took several weeks to do that. It's an important thing. I don't want to just move on if there's a lot of questions, concerns, or uh, any misunderstanding of what's entailed there. We are simply trying to uh, move people to that point of acknowledgement. Remember, we're not there to bring godly sorrow. We're, bringing there, we're there to bring acknowledgement that they recognize, at least mentally, intellectually, that they are sinners and they need to have a need for a Savior. And hopefully on a deeper level than just, oh, we're all sinners. And so that's what you'll often hear is, well, I'm human, so I make mistakes. And hopefully something more substantial than that. And the need to keep in line with what we're asking the Holy Spirit to do. So we're asking the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And that is the premise of our confrontation. What is sin? What is holiness or righteousness? And is God your judge? Well, are you ready for God to be your judge? God is the judge, the righteous judge. So we're trying to follow the pattern of the Holy Spirit. If that's what the Holy Spirit is convicting them of, and that's necessary to produce godly sorrow that leads to repentance, then we want to work in cooperation with that and confront people in those same categories. If we fail to do that, we're really doing an injustice to our evangelism. If we just want to jump right past you're a sinner and God is holy and go right to God is loving, kind, gracious, good, and he died for you, well, why would he do that? I don't need him to die for me. Uh, you're really uh, negating the biblical pattern that says there's godly sorrow, there's repentance, and then that is uh, the premise of belief. And so we're looking for that development. So we began by confronting sin. Now, at the end of that confrontation, remember that our goal and objective was to get them to what source of measure? What was our final objective? What is the measure of sin? Whose holiness? God's. So we're trying to get them, remember we started with where they were at, in their moral relativism, well, they still think there's right and wrong. It's usually pretty selfish. They still have some concept of it. It's still there, by and large. We then move them to uh, the concept of justice and, and really the law and talking about that as a moral code. Um, not, it's the entrance list for heaven. That's not what the law is. And then we want to move them towards God's standard of perfection, of complete holiness. And when they make that declaration, well, nobody's perfect, and we go, well, that's exactly our point. Isn't that exactly what Romans 3.23 says? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we agree <laughs> that that is uh, the point, that none of us are perfect. None of us are deserving to be in that place, and by our presence there, we would spoil it. Uh, we don't belong there. We don't deserve to be there because we are not. We are in that condition. and We all share that condition. And along the way there, one of the other elements of that that we didn't, I didn't necessarily take down as a separate entity, but it is your personal holiness that should be the sub substance, the, the support, I should say the support for the substantial statement you're making. Okay, so they should be able to see a personal holiness in your life that you um, don't cheat your boss, that you don't lie, that you don't uh, cheat on your spouse, that you don't disobey your parents, that you are respectful, that you are whatever. They should see that in you, notice it, and it should correlate, it should agree with what you're confronting them with, that they're sinners. And so we're trying to use our own lives in addition to their 
um, position in addition to the law and in addition to an idea of justice and God as a holy, righteous judge. So we have a lot to work with there, and, I, and there's so much there we can spend a lot of time, but I don't want to just persist there. Um, I want to keep moving forward unless you have some other comments or questions or issues involved there. Yes. Um, we're, we're going to address, but that's not an area necessarily of righteousness. So we're, this is just one area. When I'm confronting them about sin, I can't come to them while sinning with them. Would you agree with that? Okay. So we have to have personal holiness. And um, we're not, again, we're, we're talking about our sanctification process, and I'm not expecting you to be perfect. They expect you to be perfect, though. They have an expectation of that. And so uh, we recognize that we are not in our glorified state, and so we're going to fail in some respect to that. Uh, what you're referring to in terms of seeing something supernatural in us, again, that should be in some other categories of things like uh, smiling and enduring, of, of having a peace, having a, a confidence in Christ, things like that, certainly. But that is not going to necessarily be the backdrop of confronting them with sin. Usually if it's going to be a, a, a conversation on sin, it's going to be usually brought out either by them, their evil, or by your personal holiness that will bring it to bear. And we use some examples. Remember, uh, we use the example of uh, I'm going to do right and uh, set this right in the store or in with my employer while I... I don't want to be paid for time I didn't work, uh, so I need to correct my time card against me instead of for me. We'll always, whenever we want to correct the time card, it's always to our benefit, but is it ever to theirs? I want to make sure I pay full price for this. This is the actual price, and please double check that. Or you didn't charge me enough, or for I had seven of these, you only charged me for six. That we walk in there, we demonstrate a personal righteousness. Does that mean that there? aren't other people that also are, that do those kinds of good things. Well, there certainly are. And I'm not saying that this is exclusive. We're just saying it needs to correlate, your personal holiness needs to correlate with your statements about sin to people. Okay? You cannot join them in sin and then see, think that you can confront them about sin. That becomes very difficult. Uh, now, if you're coming to them and confessing sin, oh, you know, I did this, it was wrong, I should not have done it, uh, please forgive me, that can lead to those conversations. And that's very unusual, um, but it could happen. Uh, and certainly, if that's the case, if there is a sin against someone who's not a believer, that certainly needs to be something that you deal with in that fashion. And, and to demonstrate to them what repentance, what humbling oneself and acknowledging sin is all about. Because we're really inviting them, wanting them to acknowledge their sin. It would be ridiculous for you to think you can do that without acknowledging your sin as such. It leaves you pretty wide open, and so personal holiness is really important in that respect. And not that I'm walking around in eggshells, and I don't remember if you remember the message where we talked about that Inside the church is where you should behave badly. Outside the church is where you should behave well. But it's actually the reverse, right? Inside the church, we try to be all goody-goody, right? Because, And then outside the church, we act, quote-unquote, normal. We, we, we you know, will yell, so we do the, all the things with the world. And it should be the other way around. If you have any flaws, they should be visible here, not out there. And boy, what kind of churches would we be if we dealt with each other's flaws in the church and then had a flawless reputation in the rep community? That's the term blameless, which is a qualification for my office and for the deacon's office, a man be found blameless. That is in the public sector that he is known for uprightness, for just being honest, having right dealings, being just, things like that, that he has nothing that they're going to accuse him of. Okay? 
The others. All right, I want to move on. Can we do that? I'd love to stay there for a while, but I think we'll just get bogged down. And we want to move on to the next one. So that first statement was uh, confronting sin in a morally relativistic world. Our next area is called revealing truth in a subjective world. And so, again, uh, we have a dilemma in the last times, and this is not something that's never happened before in history. It is the extent to its, its presence. It permeates much of our society today, and not just here, but all over the world. And the Internet's really revealed that. This is really something all over the world. So we're going to go to a very uh, simple question from the Bible asked by somebody who is not a Christian. And this is at Jesus' trial. What was the question that Pilate asked Jesus? What is truth? Interesting question coming from the guy who is the judge. The judge of the case asks the question, what is truth? To the one who is on trial, the criminal supposedly, what is truth? And this is a valid question and an important one. And so we are here, we want to communicate truth to people. And you might say, well, maybe that's where I needed to start instead of confronting sin and Again, these aren't necessarily in chronological order in your circumstance. In fact, I think these two can be interchanged very frequently and often need to be done almost simultaneously. Because if they have a moral relativism, they usually also carry with them a concept that truth is not absolute. It is subjective. It is truth for you, but not truth for me. Just like right and wrong, there's what's right for you doesn't necessarily right for me. And just because you call it right or wrong doesn't mean it is wrong. Okay? And so these go together. They're very similar. We're going to see some similar themes mixed in there. So Pilate asks the question, what is truth? And this is amazing considering its source. Uh, what, why, why is that amazing for a Roman judge uh, to ask that question. All right, the Roman virtues, that's correct, the Roman virtues included the concept of truth. It was the, one of the pillars of their entire empire. What he is challenging is the fact that here, one of the main pillars of what makes us a country is truth that we value and uphold truth. And here is a Roman in high level asking the question, we don't even know what truth is. It's a pillar of our society, but we, I don't know what it is. And so don't think this is new. And so we're coming to people and we want to present them Jesus Christ who declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And the way is really more about moral living, right, of being the right way before God. The truth is about uh, what is true. And, and Jesus Christ says, well, I am the truth. So he personifies it, and he makes it a very personal issue. And uh, so now we have to deal with that. So you're going to be presenting Jesus Christ as the true God, as the true Messiah, and that his word is truth. Well, there's a problem, and we're going to be presenting a lot of the gospel out of the Bible, correct? And thy word is truth, we, we, right? And so we look at God's word and say, well, God's word is truth. And so we want to communicate the truth to people, and we run into a dead end because they don't recognize it as truth because they don't recognize anything as absolute truth. They're asking by and large, the same challenging question. When, when Pilate asks the question, what is truth, he is not expecting a long answer, and, and, and none is given, 
He's not expecting answers saying, well, this is true, this is true, uh, facts are true. This, you know, he's not expecting that. This is a challenge question. He is challenging that there is anything that is absolute truth. And that's what we're facing. On a huge scale in our society, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And it's just grown worse and worse and worse, hasn't it? Okay? And so we look around, and if you're paying attention at all to our world in the last, oh boy, let's just say, I mean, I could go back even farther, but let's just say just in the last five or six years. Okay? What is truth politically? Is there Russian collusion or is there Russian collusion? What is truth? What have we heard? Well, that's fake news. Those are alternative facts. Correct? You've heard those phrases? Of course you've heard fake news. And so we have, here's the news. This is all the news you need to know tonight. I grew up that, boy, Walter Cronkite said it, it must be absolutely true. That's my generation grew up with that. You know, we were the ones that had those little black and white TVs, and if it happened on there, no one could challenge it. That must be true. Well, hopefully, and I know a lot of people my generation and older still believe that, frighteningly enough. And so now we are confronted with all of these different perspectives, and we have to filter out, we go, and then we have something that the Bible talks about, about the end times. That people will set up for themselves those who tell them what they want to hear. That's not just spiritually. That's in everything. And so if I am uh, minded, if I have the mindset coming to news, out sources, uh, sources of news, uh, both on television, radio, internet, and I, and and. I want to find my philosophies supported. That can be easily done. And it doesn't matter where yours are at. Okay, if you start searching YouTube, and I, I've tested this, and, and it's true, um, for certain information, they'll keep feeding you that information. They won't feed you alternatives to that. And pretty soon you think that's all there is. And maybe we're the majority because that's all it shows up on my YouTube recommended videos. And you would be very wrong. But yet so many in our society are, have formulated ideas based upon just that scenario. And so we have the challenge, and again, because of the of the of the span of internet that has taken over the world, this is not just an American or Western problem, this is everywhere. And so, who can I trust becomes a serious issue. So when Pilate says, what is truth? He is challenging one of the pillars, concepts, of what makes Rome great, one of their virtues. And that's what we're seeing happening. It didn't just happen recently, I just want to demonstrate how extensive it is now that people will challenge every single thing out there and can do it effectively. And scientists aren't helping, are they? Are scientists helping it? Well, we've been challenging scientists uh, for my entire life, pretty much, because we've been challenging evolution, which is taught by scientists in the church my entire adult life. And pretty much before that among conservative circles. That the word of God is true and therefore their conclusions are wrong. And now we have entire groups out there, Creation Research Society, we have all of these groups out there that whole goal is to take uh, observations of the physical world, interpret them, and examine them from the lens of scripture, of, of, of creationism, and give alternative uh, understandings of them, or to expose 
information that is buried by scientists. Do scientists bury data that doesn't agree with them? All the time, in every category of scientific research, there is a burying of data that doesn't agree with them, including in medical. You cannot believe the extent. If you do any amount of research into this and you start asking strange questions that take you to documents, actual documents, and you start finding, and you, it doesn't take long, and by the way, this isn't new, okay? Do you guys ever heard of Dr. Bokamp? Have you ever heard of that guy? He challenged all the data that was falsified by another guy that you have heard of. But you've never heard of him because we believe this guy. But this guy, Bokamp, he challenged all of Louis Pasteur's data, saying he falsified it. Did you ever know that? Huh. Why not? Because we want to believe that Pasteur is right. And we've been taught that all our life. And yet this guy, Bocomp, showed and proved and wrote in his day, he was, a, he was contemporary of Pasteur, the Pasteur falsified data. Hid information. So this has been going on a long time. It's not anything new. But even at that point, we recognize that even facts that are presented to us aren't always all the facts. And so that makes truths kind of squishy, doesn't it? It's no longer hard and fast. Now it's kind of soft. And well, what do we, now I have to say, well, either I have to conclude there is really no absolute truth. What is truth? It's whatever you make it to be, whatever you want it to be. We can make truth in anything. Did you know that for many, many, many decades, it was taught, I mean taught, it was from pastors all the way down that smoking helped your lungs. It helped you cough out that stuff that built up in there. And so you look at the old time preachers, Spurgeon among them, they all smoked. They used tobacco to clear their lungs because that's what science taught them. And you're a public speaker, you want to keep your lungs clear, so you smoked. So because it made you cough up junk. Didn't occur to them that it was causing the junk that was being coughed up. No, it was just clearing your lungs. So that was taught. So I go through some of my favorite preachers, and I see the thing with their pipes and their tobacco, and I'm like, what's wrong with these guys? Well, it was medicine. Okay? And so recognize that when we talk about um, what is truth and we start looking at the world, the world has been disappointed and truth has been, relative, has been changed their entire life. Things that I was told to eat um, as a young person that were very, very healthy for me uh, for a time that you weren't supposed to eat any of those things, and now it's come full circle, and now, yes, you're supposed to eat those things. They are really actually very healthy for you. And the, the alternatives were really killing us. Let me give you a couple examples. Um, I grew up in a poor family. We were on um, welfare, and so we had to go to a place and pick up our food thing. We didn't give us cards. They didn't give us cash. You had to go and pick up government food at a, a distribution station, and they gave you stuff like peanut butter and butter. Well, they gave you real butter. I mean, real butter. But then, what did we find out? Oh, real butter is bad for you. You need margarine. So then everyone had to switch over to margarine because, you know, those fats are bad for you and real butter. And never mind lard. Don't you dare use lard. Uh, real butter, lard, all those things are bad for you. Yeah, use margarine. And... Um, Margarine, 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 margarine. And then it finally came out how margarine got to the market. Do you know? <laughs> Do you know how margarine got to the market for humans? Anybody know? 
It was originally designed to fatten turkeys, and it failed. All the turkeys died. It was a turkey fattening agent. That's what it was designed for. And it's actually one chemical bond different from plastic. Yes, plastic researchers produced margarine. They said, oh, this will fatten up turkeys. It didn't. It killed them. Well, then we'll just use this alternative to butter. So what do we have to do? We have to put out. So this is what your generation, my generation has lived through. Do you understand? I just want you to understand why they, they fundamentally challenge and ask the question of Pilate, what is truth? It's going to change next week. You absolutely positively are not going to live if you don't wear a mask until Friday. And now, you don't need to wear a mask, you're going to live fine. Well, which one is it? So what happens? Children are confused. Do we need masks? Don't. What's the deal? What, what happened today that suddenly we don't need masks? Did the germs all go away? What happened? <laughs> well, they don't know that. They don't know that. What is truth? Is this helping us or isn't it helping us? And so because we are science-based in the concept of facts and truth, and it is drilled into us, follow the science, follow the science, and we hear politicians say it, and I laugh at every single <laughs> you should study science, because you'll find out that they have no idea. They're only, science is just investigation, it's zero proof of anything, okay? So, this is the foundation. I just want to understand and don't sit there and say, those nasty people don't know the truth and won't acknowledge that there is truth. Well, nothing in society has communicated to them that there is an absolute truth. Honest, right? Is that true? What in society is true to them? Again, it's subjective. It's subject to whatever the whims of the person, the society, the whoever's in charge, the elite, whatever tell you is. But it changes. Well, absolutely. It's per, it can be personal. It can be at every level. So I can, just like I said, you can go to the internet and find your belief substantiated by some science. I mean, you could find a medical doctor who'll agree with anything including don't go to medical doctors. Okay, those are the really good ones. So what we get to is to recognize, well, what you are trying to bring it to the table is that there is an absolute truth. And this is shocking in our world. So don't think this is an aberration that occasionally you're going to encounter. It is the fundamental question in people's mind, what can I trust? Because that's really Pilate's question. Pilate's question isn't, I want to know true things or true information. He's asking the question, what is truth? It is a pillar of our society, but it has degraded so much that I can't identify it. It is unidentifiable. Now you're coming in saying, I have the truth. Well, stand in line. No wonder they say, that's your truth. But is it truth for me? So we have to have a different origination than facts, than science, than opinion, than experience. You come to people and say, well, my experience makes this true, is not true. Because now if they don't have the shared experience with you, what are they going to do? And so when we come to this, we want to acknowledge, first of all, that this is really a problem and needs to be addressed, uh, and it's not something to be taken lightly. It is a foundational problem of our sharing the gospel with people. Um, you're trying to get them to recognize that there is only one way to heaven, and God has this perfect standard, and this is absolute truth, and that what this says is true, whether it contradicts Science, social science, politics, uh, and, and even your experience, let alone your belief system. So you better be up to the task, and so we want to do that. So we're going to look at three levels 
um, not just because it's three is convenient, it's the only ones I can really come up with, three approaches that we use, um, and I'm not saying they're the only approaches, they're the dominant approaches we use to bring people into an understanding of that there is truth and that truth demands something of us. Truth demands adherence. Right? If something is true and you deny it, what are you? <laughs> You're a denier. You could be a liar. You're lying. You're deceiving even yourself if you deny, if, if, you, if something is true and you say, no, it's not, now you, you have some dissonance. You have something we have to resolve. We're in conflict. If you're in conflict with the truth, we've got a problem because truth doesn't move. So when we establish absolute truth, now we have an opportunity to bring them and say, you have to conform to truth. Truth doesn't conform to you. But the internet is the opposite. I can go out there and find truth to conform to me. And so I stand as the measure. That's subjectivism and relative. I could have intermixed those terms. That it's that the situation. So when I was growing up, there were certain things that were pretty much accepted as true. Some of those things that I was taught that aren't even true. But I were accepted truths were taught to me, and then you start doing research and you find out, well, that's not even true. But it was taught to me when I was growing up. And so we're going to look at three ways that historically and 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 we're going to examine if we can even use these. The three ways historically that we have tried to bring people to truth in all of this subjectivity that, well, that's truth, that might be truth, that's fake news, that's real facts, you can't fight the facts. Yes, you can all the time. It's easy. There are alternative facts all over the place. Okay? So now, um, how do I discern that? So there's three ways. So we're going to, I see using reason. Okay? This is a rational approach. So we're going to be talking about reason, and I'm going to probably start there. I don't think I'll get to it tonight. Um, we're going to start you with reason. And this is a little bit problematic because people, and the world is designed it this way. The internet is designed it this way. Um, and society is designed it this way because it requires something. To be able to be reasonable with somebody requires what? Knowledge. But in them, in me, what does it require for me to ha be reasonable? I have to be rational. All right, what does that require? Thoughtfulness. You have to think. Okay? Curiosity. You're gonna, but you're all, you have to be able to think. You have to be able to go through, and, and there, are, there are tools to help you think. Um, when I talk to somebody, I say, well, this is this and this and this, and I say, do you see that? And no, I don't see that. I'm like, don't you know how logic works? No, they don't. Do nothing is logical. It doesn't have to be to them. And so we have an underlying problem. So for them to be able to reason with you, there has to be knowledge, and so we have to increase their knowledge. There has to be thoughtfulness. They have to be able to think. Reasoning means to think. And... When I talk to professors, this isn't recently, this is like a lot of years ago. I remember talking with um, some of my wife's nursing professors at Cedarville, and they were like, we're having a huge problem. I said, what's a huge problem? He says, well, uh, you know, the students come here out of high school, and they don't know how to think. I said, well, they don't know the process of thinking of being thoughtful. Well, what has turned off thoughtfulness? All right. What? Oh, even before that. 
They don't even Google because they don't think about things. They don't want to go deeply into thought about something. Don't ask the question why, right? I was a beer commercial when I grew up. Why ask why? Just drink Bud Dry. I remember that. It was impacting to me, okay? Okay, that, that can be a part, that, that they're just being given answers from Grandpa Google and they get it and that's the end. But even before that, why even ask the questions? What keeps you from asking the questions even? Uh-uh. What in our society... All right, let, let me just stop asking questions. I don't have time for this. All right. They hook up little things to your brain to see how it's working, and they put you to bed. And you have brain activity. Right? And it shows. do 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 do, do Brain activity. Your brain is working while you're sleeping. Then they set you in front of a television. Same thing. Your brain activity goes down less than when you're sleeping. That's real experiments. You can replicate that. What have we done? We use our brains less awake than when we're sleeping. No wonder I solve so many problems at night when I wake up in the morning. My brain's been actually working. Okay? When we look at, and, and these experiments have been going on a long time. I don't know if you remember, there was a day when they uh, outlawed um, these subliminal messaging in movies. I remember it was a big, big deal when we were young. You remember that too. Subliminal messages. All of a sudden, you'd be watching, uh, and I, this wasn't my experience because I didn't go to movie theaters. I was a Baptist back then. We weren't allowed. Um, no movie theaters, no playing cards, no dancing, none of that. And so, um, but they were having problems. So in the middle of a movie, at the same spot, everybody would get up and go buy snacks. Well, it came out. Why? Because they had flashed faster in one frame a picture of a soda in the movie they were watching. And subliminally, that made everyone want a soda. And it became a criminal now then to do it after it was caught and it was determined that they could cause people to want to go buy a soda by flashing one in so fast you couldn't even see it, but it logged in your brain because your brain is recording everything it sees and hears, which is maybe why I saw one-on-one says, Lord, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. Um, it records it and it hits your brain and your brain says, I'm thirsty, let's go get a drink. And everyone got, and so they outlawed those. I remember that case when they started outlawing subliminal messages in movies to force people to go buy stuff in the canteen of the, is it called the canteen? Of the theater. <laughs> Outdoor theaters. It was a canteen, man. You had to... Okay, now you know how many movies I've ever been to, right? Whatever. Wherever you go get the snack. Snack bar. There you go concession, yeah, you conceded, all right, all your money. So they know, they know that they can manipulate your brain with what you see. Why do you think every one of those uh, spy movies and everything, how do they do it to people? How do they fool around with their brain? by keeping their eyes open and making them see certain things in so much, such fast sequence that they can't process it, but they know it's logging in their brain and they're controlling. Okay? So that's going on, and it's diminished the capacity. They are technically rewiring our brains to not think. Why would they do that? You can control people. They don't want truth. They don't care about truth. They don't really think about it. I never thought about that. Huh. I don't need to think about that. Because thinking is too hard to work. Your brain is like any other part of your body. It needs exercise. Are you exercising it? Most of the people you're going to encounter with the gospel are not exercising their brain to even think these kinds of hard thoughts. You're confronting them with truth, and they haven't even contemplated the question that Pilate asked. What is truth? Never crossed their mind. 
And so we're going to start by the whole idea of being able to be to reason with people and how diminished that is today. We're going to talk about that next week. The second area, okay, I got a lot of that off my chest today, so I won't have to do that next week. The second area, which is closely akin to reasoning, is called apologetics. Most of you should have heard that term apologetics. Sounds complicated, and it's kind of funny because I've heard TV preachers, I'm never going to apologize for Jesus, you know, and because these people studying apologetics, I'll never apologize. It's like, you don't even know what the word means, or you just, made, you just made a giant fool out of yourself, because apologetics isn't about apologizing for anything. Apologetics is to defend your belief system, to defend the faith. That's what the study of apologetics is. How do I defend the events of Scripture without Scripture? How do I defend Jesus before you even give me this as an absolute truth? How can I defend um, creation? How can I defend? So the area of apologetics is very wide. There, there's a lot of, most of your creation society people are want to be engaging people in apologetics. Um, uh, a good apologetic book historically is um, uh, writer was uh, Josh McDowell. Evidences that demand a verdict. Okay, that was an apologetic approach to it where we say, okay, here's um, uh, some information, here's concepts, and we're going to bring these together, and we're going to use reason and to evaluate this and rec recognize that certainly at least if I cannot prove this to be absolutely true, I can prove that it cannot be dismissed can't just dismiss this. Okay? So let me give you an example that takes us into the third category, and that is using the Bible as absolute truth. So we're going to approach people with reason, apologetics, and scripture. So let's use some apologetics to defend the scripture. So why is it so different than, say, uh, the Quran? or some of the other writings of other religious groups. What makes it so different? And why you claim this is God's, this is, God gave us this? You claim divine origin over all of this writing, and you'll encounter people say, no, it's just a book of fables, and it's nonsense. And so I ask, well, what book is like it? And so we have a defense of the Bible's divine origin. Can you do that? Can you defend the Bible's divine origin? And so we say, well, um, uh, has, has it been proven wrong archaeologically? Okay, what am I t asking them to do? Am I saying, go study this verse? I'm saying, others know that what the Bible says archaeologically has it been proven wrong. And we can go to archaeology findings and say, well, that's exactly what we find right here. And it keeps proving the Bible wrong, right, and proving the Bible right, and proving that the Bible has been accurate archaeologically. Has the Book of Mormon been proved archaeologically? We have a huge civilizations that lived here in mammoth cities uh, with big wars that happened all over the central United States here. Have we found any archaeological evidence of any of those? None. Zero. Zip. That's why Mormons have incredible amount of faith. Um, I can walk around Israel and Egypt and Jordan and Turkey, and I can find every place and exactly where it's supposed to be, just right according to this Bible. It agrees with it. And, of course, the example that we like to give here in modern circles is there is no such guy called Pilate. That's why I want to use him tonight. There is no such guy. We can't find any records in any of Roman history that there was a guy named Pilate that was in charge of anything in the Holy Lands. And then something happened. At Caesarea by the sea, they're digging around in the dirt. They come up with this great big hunk of stone that's got all this stuff printed on it ching, 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 you know, carved into stone. It's written in stone. And who would be on there but the guy's name is Pilate. 
And so there's a great magazine called Biblical Archaeology Today, and it's just chock full of those kinds of stories because they're always happening. You never hear about them, but we keep finding things. And the more that we find, the more we say the Bible's archaeologically true. That is apologetics. I'm using things outside the Bible to substantiate the Bible. And so I can use some internal things too in apologetics. It doesn't have to be external. Um, obviously, I'm talking about information in the Bible. So I can say, well, it's got um, all these number of authors that wrote, wrote across this period of time, and no other document has that. Who wrote the Quran? Well, he couldn't write. He was illiterate. Who wrote the Quran? His secretary, okay? He dictated it to him. Who wrote the Book of Mormon? No, Joseph Smith did not write it. He dictated it. You know who? He had a guy, he had the special tablets, and the guy was in front of him. The guy could never look at the special gold tablets. Only Smith could, and he dictated it out, and this guy wrote it all down. He was the secretary as well. One guy. One guy. Brigham Young. I don't think it was Brigham Young. He came along later. So all these religions of a book are so different than this. What's about Confucianism? Who wrote his work? Confucius did. Who was confused? So we have a very different book. How many authors? Do you know? 40? Across how many years? From Job to Revelation. Over 3,000 years, right? You can't. Span. 3,500 years from Job to Revelation, approximately. Whenever you say hundreds of years, you know that's approximate. Okay? Uh, depending on whether you think Job is pre-flood or post-flood information. Book of Enoch would be a pre-flood book, which we know that Jude had access to. Okay? All these authors, how many different languages? Three languages. Probably four. In Daniel, we have Aramaic, which is Babylonian language used. We have uh, Hebrew, and we have Greek. Right? And so we have three languages, how many different nations? Called? I mean, you look at all of that. This is a unique book. That's what apologetics sounds like. So we use that in terms of presenting what is truth uh, to people outside of the church. We want to address that. We should be very well versed in conversing, and usually they'll converse, and, and I'll just, you really think you used to be a monkey? Okay, well, that's engaging in that discussion, and apologetics is the category where we devise those arguments for our faith. They are rational arguments. They are reasonable. There's logic arguments used in there. Uh, Josh McDowell was a big-time unbeliever who was going to prove Christianity wrong once and for all. And he did all the study, all the research, all the study, all the research, just kept going, 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 went to all the places, read all the original documents, went through all this, was going to prove that no such person as Jesus lived, and then he certainly didn't die and rise again. And he researched and researched. He was getting ready to just blast Christianity off the face of the earth, and he got saved. By the end of the exercise, he says, this is the most true thing there is. Okay? You need to be efficient, proficient at being able to defend your faith. Um, and it can be done and, and should be done. Most of the people that call it fairy tales are injured somewhere. They have an injury in their past. They had contact with the scriptures and they are injured personally and so they hate the scriptures usually because they've been abused by people claiming to be followers of the scriptures. Okay, and then the scriptures is our last tool in, in, in um, uh, revealing truth in this world. We need to reveal truth to them. 
And like I said, which one is first sin or truth, we can debate that. And, I, and, and we'd be foolish to do that because your circumstances and conversations might put one before the other. But this one needs to definitely lead to this one. And I think this one is substantiated and helps uh, lead us to this one as well. Okay, so we're going to be looking at these three areas of uh, reason, of apologetics, and of scripture. And, and hopefully you know your Bible enough that that one will be pretty brief. Um, but we need to be able to handle our Bibles. Do you know how to lead someone to Christ using your Bible? Using their Bible. Okay? Even if it's some weird version. Like the New World Translation. That's the Jehovah's Witness special translation for them. Okay? And... and um, you're already using an Old Testament that was anti-Jesus um, because the people that translated the Hebrew for you in your Old Testament didn't believe in Jesus. Yeah, we use it. Okay? And so the Masoretes didn't believe in Jesus. And that Masoretic text is the basis of the NIV, New King James, King James, uh, NASB, all of them. Just, they're all founded off of the Masoretic text, and none of those people believed in Jesus. We trust them to translate Hebrew for us. Okay, so uh, we need to know our Bibles, how to use it, and how to lead someone to Christ with their Bible, even the Quran. Because the Quran quotes a lot of things about Jesus. Did you know that? And a lot of things about Abraham. That's right out of the Bible, our Bible. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Because Muhammad had that contact with a, a perverted Gnostic Christian, but still he had that contact. And some of that shows up in the Quran. Okay, so we need to know these things. So we want to explore that a little bit too. Um, but uh, we want to just set the why we are doing this. And I want to establish that this is really critical and needs to be a big part of your praying for people that to help them think and don't try to do these things when and why is it so slow because they haven't even thought about some of this and satan has has created an environment where people don't think we want to encourage them to do that to exercise their brain and that takes some time sometimes to move them into that into that uh, exercise that that work Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for your truth and uh, the privilege we have of having such access to it in our own language and then to have access to you, the truth, the way, the life. And Lord, we thank you for communicating your divine truth to us that doesn't change, that is trustworthy that we can build our lives on today and uh, have confidence on our future because of who you are. And we thank you for revealing yourself to us, not keeping us in the dark. Help us to be revealers of your truth to those that we encounter as well. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. And I do have copies of the bioethics statement that are revised out there as well. You can take